Welcome to the Collective West podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to supporting young people in Melbourne's West. My name is Julia. And I'm Michael. Karen Jackson is Yorta Yorta, a Footscray resident and a member of many local Western suburbs, Aboriginal community groups and committees. She is an advocate for the recognition of sovereign First Nation peoples and traditional lands never ceded for developing culturally safe spaces that enable Aboriginal people to aspire to personal, family, and community goals. Karen Jackson also works to the delivery of relevant tertiary education and community-based programs by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people. KJ is the director of the Mudani Balak Indigenous Academic Unit at Victoria University. This institute aims to deliver Aboriginal curriculum by Aboriginal academics to all students, undertake community-led research, support Aboriginal students and engage in local Aboriginal empowerment. She's a member of the Western Metropolitan Partnership, which is a state government board that provides advice and direction to the state government on the needs of the local community. This podcast is really special because we record it during National NADOC week from the 4th to 11th of July, 2021. For those who don't know, NADOC week is really special as it celebrates the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. All right, let's. And where is home? Is it in Footscray as well, or? Yeah, Maribyrnong. Well, mm. the, yeah, the end of Gordon Street, which is. Yeah. Nice. I say it's Footscray, but it's not really. The postcode doesn't say it's Footscray. Yeah. So you live really close to the U. Yeah, yeah, campus. yeah. yeah. I can. Oh yes. I love that. I yeah. used to live um, on Barclay Street, or just behind Barclay Street, where the KFC is. Oh yes, that's where I grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a cool little area. Yeah. Maribyrnong's okay. It's changed a bit. Not as good oh. As very much so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the new happening spot. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So you're right next to the hospital, the new hospital. Yeah, where the campus is as well. Yeah. So we can hit, we sit in our office. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. I can imagine. All of that, All yes. Right. Anyway, how was your uh, coastal trek in May? Yeah, that was good, actually. One of our girls, though, she, um, because she wasn't used, used to walking on sand or up too many hills. She'd walked hills, but yeah, with sand, she just yeah, couldn't do it. So thing. what was the track for again? Because I know I, uh, I, I did donate. Mental health. Um, yes. Beyond Blue. Yeah, right. Oh, great. Took me a while to remember that. And how long was the... It's only 30 k's. Oh, only. Yeah, only 30 k's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's 30 more k's than I did. Oh, 100% <laughs> for me. <laughs> I've been moving much. Yes, it was my sister's idea. And um, she sort of went, yeah, yeah, let's do this walk. I went, yeah, okay, it's, it's only 30 k's, we'll be right. Mm. Yeah. So you knock it off in, what, a couple of hours? No, <laughs> it's slower than that, geez, Louise. I can't remember how long, maybe half a day almost. Okay, yeah. and this is on the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you got all Beautiful. the way into Point Nepean where you yeah. don't normally mm. have access to, so yeah. that was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah that's great. So you got right at the tip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the worst part is you get right down to the tip and you go up this hill, which seems like, doesn't like seem like a hill. Then you go down to the bottom. Then you turn around and come back up, and there's this huge set of stairs. Yeah, right. And you go, no <laughs> way, that's nuts. <laughs> like towards the end, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's nasty. Yeah, they shouldn't have done that, but that, they did anyway. They leave the hardest bit right at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then after that, sort of them little tracks to the thing, and then it's flat. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it the first time doing the trek, or do you do it? No, I've done I've done that one once before, but I also mm. did Oxfam. Mm-hmm. Which is a hundred kilometers. Yep. That was a while ago when I was much fitter. A <laughs> hundred kilometers. Yeah. yeah. So That's thirty would have been a breeze. Two days, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. got to camp overnight. Mm. Yeah, I did it with Tony Birch. You know Tony Birch, the writer. No. Anyway, sounds familiar though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got stacks of books. He's very clever. He does poetry as well. He used to work with us, and he went, "Yeah, yeah, let's do hundred k's." And then he goes, "We shouldn't sleep." Oh my oh, god! Are you mad? <laughs> are you mad? You'd be delirious by the finish line. Yeah. And he like. <laughs> Because he's a runner. Yeah. He's addicted to running. And so he lives in Fitzroy and he used to run to work. Right. Across to Footscray every day. And then he'd run home again. Oh my God. Every and day. He, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Every day. How many k's is that? From, I have no idea. So Fitz, from Fitzroy yeah. to Footscray, Footscray, Ballarat Road, Footscray. Yeah. Yeah. You just go, I'll put my gear on, run, go and have a shower, do my day's work, run home. Yeah. It's probably like 20 kilometres. I mean, it's a good yeah. stress reliever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I what mean, you does. get home and you go, oh, I've got my exercise done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's done. Yeah. Well, Real Dorrington, former CEO of Western Chances, mm. a great mentor of ours, used to walk because she lives in the city. Oh, yes. She walks all the way to, you know, Footscray quite regularly as yeah, well. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I usually yeah. would drive 
That's right. Uh, to my office yeah. and I would be seeing her. She'd be walking, <laughs> beeping her along the yes. way. <laughs> yes. When I was in training for Oxfam, I used to walk from Footscray to Elbow Park Lake. Oh, oh wow. to the Junction Oval because my yeah. niece would play foot cricket there, not football, cricket. Mm. And so I'd, I'd go, I'll just meet you there, I'll walk. Anybody go, did you just walk here? Yeah. Yeah, that's not far. I've got to 100 kilometres in a few months, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you always lived a pretty active lifestyle? Yeah. Till I got pregnant, then I had a baby and then I didn't do much at all. And then I went, oh, my God, this is just really bad. I better get back to being active. Yeah, yeah. nice. So I've always played sport. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What sports? Netball. Mm. Cricket. Yeah. Hockey. Oh, that's everything. Cool. I tried basketball, but I was too short for basketball. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, we, we interviewed – um. Wade Noonan on, yeah. on Thursday, and he was talking. He, he was saying he just got into basketball. Yeah. Oh, really? He's um, you know, he's six yeah. one. He's tall. And we're saying I'm five nine. I can barely <laughs> yeah. get into basketball. Yeah, so he, yeah, has, yeah. he has no issues with yeah, it. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, KJ, thank you again for agreeing to be on this podcast, especially mm-hmm. during such great time in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander calendar in NADOC week. Yeah. Um. Obviously, this podcast won't come out in NADOC week, but I just wanted to acknowledge that. This is a really busy week and I think firstly I wanted to acknowledge the land on which we're having this podcast which is the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and also acknowledge that we are meeting on stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded. So Karen, KJ, as I like to call you, really appreciate you being here. I've got a whole bunch of questions to so does Julia, mm-hmm. but really appreciate the time be here in person, which is really, really nice. And you're, cool. I think you're the second person since post-lockdown to be able to do this in person, which oh, is wow. great. Yeah. yeah. Which is really, really yeah, great. Yeah, that's deadly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's very cool. Which is great. Yes. What we'll do is we'll We'll read your bio okay. in post-production yep. and then we'll just put it at the front. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, these conversations are meant to be conversational. Yep, free-flowing. Um, free-flowing. Yep. So we've got questions, but um, we can start, stop wherever you like and then mm-hmm. dive back into other things yeah, as yeah. well. Mm. So maybe one of the first things I'd like to say is that thank you for doing that acknowledgement. That was really wonderful. But what has happened recently is the Victorian government through the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council has made a decision through their statutory requirements or their statutory rights, I guess, on who the traditional owners are of land in the Melbourne CBD. Oh. Right, okay. And so they've drawn a line above the Birang, the Yarra River, for Bunurong Land Council and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung Tribal Council. And so from memory, this part of this land is now under the Registered Aboriginal Party status of Woiwurrung Wurundjeri. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of government legislation. I mean, it's still contested. Woiwurrung actually say their land goes right down to the bay and around to Mordialik. Bunurong, of course, say, no, 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 uh, we had access to Werribee and Geelong and that side of the bay. And so our land also came up around Melbourne and around the bay. There's this whole thing that is going on around who are traditional owners, who's not. But under legislation, there's registered Aboriginal parties and a line has been drawn across Melbourne. Yeah, right. Yeah. In that process, do they do they engage communities in that process? Yeah. They said that they've spent the last two or three years actually sitting down trying to talk to Wurundjeri Land Council and the Bunurong Land Council. And then the other player in this field is also the Bunurong Foundation, mm. which is a different group. They're sort of in complete contestation against Wurundjeri Land Council and the Bunurong Land Council. So they spent two or three years trying to negotiate mm. between the two registered Aboriginal parties to try and find a space in between and they just couldn't get to an agreement. It was just impossible. So they used their statutory authority to say we're going to follow what we see as the old watercourse through Melbourne where the Oh, no, what they did is they said, so Bunurang are saltwater people and Woiwurrung Wurundjeri are freshwater people from the water that comes out of the catchments above Victoria. And Bunurang are sort of more around the bay and so they drew a line where, they, where the freshwater runs into the Yarra mm-hmm. and where it doesn't and where the saltwater is. And they said, this is the line and this is what we're, this is the decision we're making. Yeah, it's, wow. um, yeah, it's a really full-on decision. I mean, yeah. in one way it's sort of good but in the other way the traditional owners – just still unhappy. And, and I was just yeah. going to say, yeah. well, what's the reaction been? Yeah. 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 yeah still contesting. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Very much. And that's actually one of the first themes I wanted to pick up on. How do you, how do you yourself navigate the complexity and also the, the areas of contestation between different groups mm. in this space? Yeah. Sometimes you just don't. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in one way it's sort of because my traditional land is Yorta Yorta, so it's up on the river, up near Echuca, across into New South Wales, in the Barmer Forest. So that's my traditional owner status and my country. I sort of name myself as a historical Aboriginal person who lives in the west of Melbourne, so that's not my traditional owner land. I do the things like, okay, the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council says these are the traditional owners, but if I'm not working with traditional owners around cultural heritage matters or including their knowledge in my work, I'm working with the other Aboriginal people who live in the Western Melbourne and they're like me, like historical people. Working with them actually works out to be quite okay, except for community politics, of course, because that's rampant in all sorts of community spaces. Yeah, that happens mm. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in other spaces it works quite well. And so we sort of go, okay, so we're, we're not doing traditional owner business we're doing culturally safe spaces for people to gather or we're service providers or we're program providers. So in that way there's sort of a separation between traditional owners so that's a little bit easier to navigate, I guess, yeah, mostly, right. yeah. yeah. Mm. Has there been times where is, – is it possible or, or should you or other groups be aiming for consensus or is the contestation or the contest between or these conversations around what this group wants and what this group wants and what recognition they want, is this sort of inevitable and – ultimately good for this space? Mm, mm, good question. That's, uh, I've been holding so this in, in for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I've asked KJ these questions. Every time we meet, we're always in a formal meeting and That's I can't right. just mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. you with questions. Do you want to just have a yarn before yeah. we go? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that sort of thing, like I'm on a number of committees in the Western, as you know, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, yeah and a lot of them are Aboriginal committees. And so in those spaces we aim for consensus just because we think it's the right thing to do. And so our decision-making is like being in a yarning circle, I guess. It's a safe space. People feel safe to say how they feel and to disagree. And that's important because Aboriginal people need to have voice. And if they're not practising voice in those sort of committees, then they don't practise it out in the broader mainstream. And so then they lose their voice and they lose their power. So trying to have a consensus in an Aboriginal group is really important. Trying to get consensus across the whole of the state or across a region, that's really difficult and that's really hard. You can try for it. Sometimes it just doesn't work. The spaces where I've seen things like that work, even though it's not consensus, it's, but it's around things around Aboriginal voice, I think. So things like the Aboriginal Justice Forum, which includes a number of Aboriginal people who are on the ground working with courts and corrections and police, they sort of run these huge forums with all the departmental secretaries of state government. And so Aboriginal people come to that space and they have a Koori caucus. And so before they go into the big meeting with all these departmental secretaries who have so much power, the Koori caucus all get together. They work through what it is that their agenda is and what it is that they want to push these state government reps on and what things they want those people to change in that space, which is a bit like consensus. Not really, but, you know, it sort of it works well in those sorts of spaces, I guess. So it's, yeah, so it's varied. So it depends where you are, who you're working with and, yeah, where people are at. Some people aren't ready to use their voice either, which mm. is another thing. And so that's why you want to make a safe space mm. so people can learn about their own strength and identity and then use their voice. I only have a hundred more questions. <laughs> Always. Only a hundred. He's lucky we got a couple of days. <laughs> this is going to be longer than the hundred K. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oxford up and down the hills. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back around again. Yeah. Um, I think for our audience, it would really be wonderful if you could maybe give a little bit of context about who you are and I know your connection with Victoria University mm -hmm. and what you do, just as a quick kind of snapshot. Yep. So as I said before, I'm Yorta Yorta. Yorta Yorta, Jaja and that's also a bit of a contested thing. So Jaja Rang is um, my great-great-grandfather. Finneymore Jackson was born at Mount Hope near Pyramid Hill. My great-great-grandmother was Kitty Atkinson, born near Mora Lakes in Barmer Forest. And so that's my, you know, familial um, ancestral line, paternal and maternal. So on top of that, so I'm now currently the Associate Provost, Ooh. Indigenous. <laughs> and I like, you've got to say it with a little plumbing yeah, in your mouth. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> really amazing, doesn't it? Associate Provost. I used to be the Director of Moondani Balak, Indigenous Academic Unit, and then they gave me a little promotion. They haven't given me a wage wise yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a promotion, then I've got twice as many meetings to go to, which is a bit yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I also get to talk to the bosses. So I like that. Yeah. Because otherwise I've got to, you know, go around the, mm. around the circles. I don't like going around the circles. Anyway. I'm the Associate Provost at Mundani Balak mm -hmm. at Victoria University, co-chair of the Collingwood and Yao Committee at the Wungurudurung Centre, which is in Windenvale, the co-chair of the Footprints for Success project, which is um, an early years project with a whole stack of steering committee members that work 
to keep families together in the west of Melbourne because a lot of um, Aboriginal families in western Melbourne are under surveillance from child protection and they get their kids taken off them and put in out-of-home care, which is a really bad space. And there's a few other things that I do out in the West as well. You know, the West Melbourne West, what are we called? Blah, 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 that well, thing, you know. KJ, we are the yeah. Western Metropolitan <laughs> Partnerships. That's it. Is that, is that, did that's I do that one? correctly? Yes, yeah. yes. And that's well, actually how we met. Yeah. Because we were inducted at the same time, I think. We were. Yeah. Yeah. We went to that flash place, wherever it was, in Collins Street. Was it in Collins uh, Grand Street? Grand Hyatt? Yeah. Was it Grand Hyatt? Yeah. yeah. And 2019. flash food and... Gosh. This little indoor courtyardy thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I thought every meeting was going to be like yeah, that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're in lockdown. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's no food, yeah. there's no flash, flash meeting places. I know. It's a bit sad, wasn't it? Yeah. But that was, yeah, we did get inducted at the same time. Yeah. That was really cool, wasn't it? That was really good. Mm. 2019, that was um, when you could do things in person. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it was good to have those sorts of meetings. Yeah. yeah. So I'm also on that Western Metro Partnership. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. What an impressive CV and, and things that you are involved in. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're talking to, we mentioned this before, talking to Wade Noonan mm. and all the stuff that he's involved in across with Victoria University, with Womita, of course, and we'll talk about that event that we were at together. But we asked him with all the stuff that he does across the West and also with you, with being a, a full-time academic, being um, across all these different partnerships, committees, advisory groups, like mm. how do you find the time to sleep? <laughs> or, do you sleep? or do you sleep? No, no. So I'm a, I was going to say I'm a good sleeper, but that depends on what's going on in the spaces. So sometimes I wake up at three in the morning and go, oh, I'm alive. Wow, I haven't answered that thing. That was really important. Then I go, oh, well, better go back to bed. But better go back to sleep rather because I'm already in bed. And so I do sleep quite well. You try to be really organised. I can never get my inbox to have completely no unread messages same. I think that's impossible. <laughs> I think that's impossible, isn't yeah. it? I don't think anybody does that. Although the other day I did have 300-odd unread messages and I went, how in the hell did that happen? So I went through them and then there was like three days where I didn't see all these emails and I went, what? Anyway, so <laughs> with the other thing I tried to do my is get up early <laughs> in the morning and actually do my exercise and that sort of stuff and then try to follow healthy eating and that sort of thing as well. And then you just do what you do, I think. The other thing, I'm a single mum but I'm also old and my son is grown up now and so I don't have to look after mm. him. So it's just me. I did have a dog. He was old too, then he died, but that's all right. I haven't replaced the dog, so it's just me basically. Mm. So I can go da 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 What I have to remind myself is to not be fully so fully immersed in work that I don't give myself time mm. to do the things that are important to me, like, you know, walk on country or visit family and friends, get out of the house. There was sometimes in... Um, lockdown and I'd sort of go, oh, because my immediate family all live in Frankston, which is miles away and, you know, 25 kilometre limit, I couldn't go and see them, couldn't see my mum. Yeah. Yeah. And so some days I'd just go, I'd get in the car and i go, where's my 25 kilometres radius? And I'd just go for this drive around there <laughs> just to get out of the house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes I'd just go for a really long walk so I could get away from the computer and get away from work and get away from thinking about okay, where's that community group up to? What have I done in that meeting? Who's not doing this thing? Da, 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 da. I don't even think I'm organised. I don't know. But you sort of have a bit of a pattern. Yeah. And you just make it. What's that word? You fake it till you make it. That's yeah. how it goes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've come up with some pretty good sayings on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's it. a good one. But zooming in on the stuff you do across Melbourne's West, I guess, could you give a snapshot or an understanding of the landscape of the First Nations space in Melbourne's West? Mm. When I first started at VU, I'll start with the, with the long story, but I'll make it a short story. When I first started at VU, and I've been there like 25 years or whatever, so it's a very long time, we were doing this curriculum project, which we were looking at whose land we were on and, and then trying to get Aboriginal people in to go and teach in the higher ed courses at VU, which we did quite well. But the story around, and that was where I got more understanding of the contested land between Bumurang and Woiwurrung, Annette Sherbus, who's a Wurundjeri elder who lives in the West, I said, oh, we need to do a little cultural tour around the West of Melbourne to talk about who the traditional owners are, what are the cultural heritage sites, what's what's in the West of Melbourne, because I knew my great-uncle William Cooper lived in the West of Melbourne, did some amazing work and set up, you know, the Aboriginal Advancement League and wrote letters to the king, wrote letters to the queen and, mm. you know, did all these petitions and he were, he started the day of mourning. Anyway, anyway so that's him. He's Yorta Yorta, he's like me off country. So there's quite a few Yorta Yorta people that used to live in Footscray. 
But Annette took us around. We got the little university minibus and we started off down in Williamstown under the bridge and she was telling us the story about how the bay was never that shape mm. and the way she said that Woiwurrung used, used that land and the story around the creation of the bay. So there was a creation story around young children in a tarnak, which is a water carrier, and them being naughty with the water carrier when the other people were away and spilling it so they created the bay. And she drove us then we left that space. So she told us all sort, those sorts of stories along the way. But there's, you know, there's a green axe quarry in Keelor, somewhere in Keelor, Keelor Downs anyway. There's also scar trees and red ochre sites along the Maribyrnong River. And so they're all Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri. There's a burial site in Werribee on the Werribee River down near the mansion, yep. which was found when they were doing sand mining. There's also a massacre site down there as well. Yeah, right. And there's a whole set of footprints across the western region of Melbourne. So there's Woiwurrung, Boomerang, Contested Land and Wadawurrung as traditional owners on the western side of the Werribee River. And they all have amazing stories. They all have creation stories and they all understand their spaces in those things. Yeah. And so that's sort of the traditional owner story. And then there's the sort of the community groups I've been involved with, like the um, Indigenous Advisory Group of Footscray Community Arts Centre, which is located in that space. And then the um, the RAJAC, Regional Aboriginal Justice Advisory Committee, and the old Department of Health and Human Services, they, they had a committee as well. So there's all those sort of different spaces that operate across the West as Aboriginal entities, I guess. Yeah. I think. Yep. Did I answer that? Yeah, yeah. I guess the the, the stories you tell of the, the creation story of the West and the connection you have to the area, I guess, how does that inform your work today? So not mm. only with Victoria University, but as you mentioned with your role as the coach at Footscray Community Arts Centre and all these different communities across the West, I guess, what are you working towards? Mm. Ah, yes. Well, I'm working towards not actually working around the traditional owner type work, although I'm wanting to create relationships I want Victoria University to create the right relationships with traditional owners so that they do the right sort of work with those people. That sounded bad when I said those people, but with the traditional owners and so that the university actually recognises their knowledge and their traditional owner status and the ways and then they work out proper ways to have equal relationships for them. So for me, what I'm working towards is what I was talking about earlier about Aboriginal community in the Western Melbourne who haven't had a voice who have never been involved in community organisations or setting them up and never actually been involved in delivering programs or creating spaces that are safe for them together. Because there's a number of Aboriginal people in the Western Melbourne who are from Stolen Gens. And so they, some of them know their country and others just don't know anything. And they go, I've searched and searched but I can't find. There's no paperwork, you know. How, how do I know who I am even though I know that my grandmother and my mother have told me that I'm Aboriginal. For me, that community-led, community-activated spaces and programs and services, that's what sits in my heart. That's that's the most important thing for me because there's a whole stack of blackfellas who are in the west of Melbourne but nobody knows that they're even there, right? There's service providers who say they're providing services to Aboriginal people but they don't interact with that. Mm. Aboriginal people. So what I want to do is make Aboriginal community visible mm. in the west of Melbourne through whatever ways I can do it, you know, whether it's being on that steering committee with Footprints of Success with all of those local councils and all those service providers providing early year services and just, you know, reminding them, here's these families. These yeah. families are traumatised. These families need your assistance and you need to be culturally relevant to them. You just can't sit there and take Aboriginal money for Aboriginal programs and not deliver them the right way. And so that's so. There's those two things. There's things about community having a voice and community-led ways that community gather, but to make service providers accountable to Aboriginal community in a way that they give the right sort of programs that Aboriginal people can access and they feel safe to access those. That's that's the other important. Point. So that they're the two things that sort of you know are strong in my heart. Oh, apart from doing my job at the uni where we try to you know <laughs> <laughs> on top of all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where we're, you know, trying to get Aboriginal students in to do higher ed or vocational education courses and, you know, making them safe and making the university a good space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Has that goal always been, has it always been 
uh, I guess, a driving force behind all of your involvements with these multiple, you know, organisations and community groups or is it something that's been developed over time as mm. you've learned more about mm. the country? Yeah, I'm certain it's it's built over time because when I was younger, what I learnt from my mum, who's Irish, because my dad's, you know, the black parent in, my, in our family. So mum and her mum were... So her mum was, you know, part of the Country Women's Association and I have sort of vague memories of being a little kid and being dragged along, you know, to all these little um, markets and little stalls and things that my mum was involved with and, you know, mum would always be there at the women in primary school helping make the costumes for the Christmas, you know, concerts and that sort of stuff. Yep. <laughs> so I understood that thing around community in that space. But at that time I knew our dad was Aboriginal but I didn't know my country or who I was connected to. Mm-hmm. So as I grew older and I started work and I, oh, and there was another time when I ran into Gary Foley and Robbie Thorpe in um, in a pub of all places, <laughs> down in Frankston. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as you do, you know, yeah. you're out as a young 20-year-old or maybe under 20 having a good time <laughs> with your girlfriends and and – a friend of yours says, yeah, come over here and meet these people. I'm going, who am I going to meet? <laughs> and they said, Gary Foley and Robbie Thorpe. And I went, oh, Gary Foley's really scary. Oh, my God. Um, and a lot of people still think that way and I did then. And um, so they, I introduced myself and they introduced themselves and they're going, you ought to get yourself into Fitzroy and you ought to get, get started, you know, working in community and, you know, mm. getting involved in these sorts of things. And I went, oh, my God, you just scared the shit out of me. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then probably about three or four years later I got a job in the public service and Ron James, who's also a Yordion man, I ended up working with him in the Aboriginal Services Unit of the old Department of Social Security and he was, a, he was an amazing mentor to me and so one of the first things he did with me was take me to Fitzroy. <laughs> 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 and so I told him that same story and he went, yeah, well, Foley will be in the health service because that's where he always hangs out and Robbie, he's there in the Career Information Centre which was in Gertrude Street in, mm. in Fitzroy. So he took me around and introduced me to that community and then he introduced me and Ani Faye Carter, who's also Yora Yora in charge of Arang. She also worked in the same unit and she took me and um, old Andrew Jackamoss's dad. He used to do everybody's family's trees back then. And you'd go and meet him in a community space and he'd go, Karen Jackson, your dad used to play football in Melbourne, didn't he? Oh, and he's – and so you're related to Kitty Atkinson and he'd pull out a piece of paper and write out your family tree for oh, you. Wow. And it was just amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's what we all did back <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah. Everybody shared their stories about mm. who they were and how they were connected. And then so I had this family tree and I'm going, oh, my God. Yeah, so it's come around you. That was the mission where everybody – and so then you start to learn that history and then – and through the work with um, Ron James and Anifei Carter – We'd do sort of field trips because we covered all of Victoria and we'd they'd take me up to Yorta Yorta country and we'd go out to the mission and that sort of stuff and we'd go visit the cemetery mm. and you'd see all the people's names of who you were related to. It was just it was just pretty amazing because it gave you so much strength as well. Yeah. And you're learning all this yeah. stuff about your and own a sense past. of belonging as yeah. well, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. 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 It was wow. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So that was yeah, that's how I grew into that space. So that was knowing about who I was mm. and where I was connected to. And then I think as I grew into my work, so I moved from Social Security into Aboriginal Affairs Victoria and so we did a lot of work then with all the Aboriginal co-ops mm-hmm. that were set up around Victoria. There was about 36 of them. And so a lot of our work was around providing programs into those Aboriginal co-ops. So then I got to learn about what those programs did and how well they supported Aboriginal people in those spaces. And then we sort of also worked with developing the Aboriginal Child Care Agency, which is now a huge organisation that does a whole stack of work and, you know, worked in government to do that sort of legislative work and those sorts of things. And, you know, from there, then I moved to the university and um, sort of went, okay, so I'm in this other space now and here I am in the west of Melbourne and it's just not the same. Yeah. It's not the same as all those other spaces I know. Yeah. Not the same as all those Aboriginal co-ops. There's, there's nobody here. There's, there's nobody's doing this and nobody's doing that. And so, yeah. So yeah. then I sort of fell into that space, I guess. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for those who are non-Indigenous, like how can we support your vision or your goal in, you know, cre- I guess enabling the voice of mm. other Aboriginal people? Yeah, yeah. Good question. That I think I normally give the same answer when I sort of get asked that sort of question is you need to learn how to become a good ally 
And one of the things about becoming a good ally is to learn things yourself, a bit like the way that I sort of learned things. And I went, oh, I found that bit. Now I need to go and do research and work through that and find out these stories. So one of the things you do is sort of go, okay, so who's the traditional owners of land that I'm on? And so you start saying those sorts of things and you, you know, and then you can go to all sorts of spaces like Bunjalaka at Melbourne Museum or the Koori Heritage Trust. Um, you couldn't read. There's whole so many black people writing these days. There's amazing books. There's, you know, websites and those sorts of things. Be careful of the websites though because <laughs> some of them are a bit gammon, I tell you. So you need to actually check who's set them up and whether they're yeah. people. Yeah. 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 Um, That's a good tip. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's, yeah, there's some spaces that you just shouldn't use. Yeah. Anyway, I won't say those names in the podcast, but, you know, if anyone wants to contact me further on, (laughs) I'll say, don't go here and don't go there. That's bad. (laughs) So you just need to be mindful of those sorts of things. The other thing I tell people, two other things about how to be a good ally is to take the time. Mm. So to take the time to find out if there's any local co-ops or local Aboriginal entities where you live that are close by. And if they're not, you can do things like pay the rent and donate to those sorts of organisations or the SEED, the Aboriginal Climate Change Activists. You can you can donate to those sorts of things or to your, one of the statewide orgs or those sorts of things. The other thing, so take the time then to make relationships with those spaces, with those organisations or entities that are near you. And you need to take the time because if you just rock up and go, yeah, I'm here to help, I'm an ally, yeah, 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 and they'll just go, what, don't even know you, you know. Come back when we're having an event or something. Introduce yourself yeah. and keep coming yeah. back until you, yeah. until you, invited in. And once you get invited yeah. in, then you can go. What can I do? Yeah, yeah. And because you'll have a whole set of skills. The other thing that I always say is so we have Dr. Claire Land who works with us at Mundani Balak at VU. She has an amazing book called Decolonizing Solidarities, mm-hmm. and that that book is also has a series of like it's a bit of a workbook as well. And so you can go through that book and that teaches you how to be a great ally for Aboriginal people. And that book is based on her PhD because she was doing, was she doing masters with honours? She did an honours year at Melbourne Uni with Foley. And she was always a bit of an activist anyway. Mm -hmm. But once she sort of did her honours with Foley, she just went, oh, I have to do this stuff. And so her PhD was on how to be a good ally. And the book came out of that. Yeah, she was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure we took some notes there. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Number one, educate and learn. Yep. Number two, show up <laughs> yeah. and support the com- local community organization. Yes. Yep. So it really starts small, but start meaningfully. Yeah. And then the, the third one is look at resources out there to see how you can recognize your own privilege and what you're bringing into this space. Yep. Which I think yep. is really, really important. Yeah. And one more just on top of that, yep. which I just remembered, is don't do the thing that a lot of people do. Well, not a lot of people. But people in positions of power who maybe have money or programs that they're trying to work with Aboriginal community on, so they go off and do their cultural awareness training. So they do their cultural awareness training and they go, that's it. I don't need to learn anything else. Yeah, I'm ready. I can be the saviour. I'm amazing. So they don't actually shift their mm. thoughts or how they understand their dominance and their power and they then also tend to treat the Aboriginal people that they're working with like they're the expert instead of the Aboriginal person being the expert. So yeah. don't ever do that. I wrote That's that, don't be that person. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know what we're talking yeah, about yeah. when I say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a question and if this is a question that you don't want to answer, feel free to say no. What I'm really curious to know is when you started to get an awareness of your own connection to your Aboriginal heritage when you were younger and that growing sense of connection, how did you deal with the – the traumas that I think would have been experienced by your family and, and your ancestors if that did come up. Yeah. It didn't really for me. And I don't know whether that was because Dad was a footballer and we lived in a lot of country Victorian spaces and we weren't actually in Aboriginal community. So on the one hand, right, when I first met a number of activists or people who were involved in community-led programs – They said, where did you grow up? And I went in Thornton, which is a small country town near Lake Gildon, and they go, ah, so you didn't grow up in community. Mm. And I go, well, no, but I'm here now and I'm doing my work and I'm, you know, really committed and I'm doing things the right way. But some people would actually go, oh, I don't want to talk to you, right? 
that's not trauma. There's other families I know whose grandparents sort of walked off missions and reserves and lived on riverbanks and my great-grandmother, no, my great-aunt did that and then when she moved into town and they gave her a little house because she wasn't used to using electricity, she still used her candles and so she actually burned her bedding down accidentally because she left her candle on. So that's not my trauma either but that's just part of my story. There's Aboriginal families who have suffered deeply around trauma, around physical abuse and spiritual abuse and sexual abuse um, and that didn't happen in my immediate family and not as far as I know in, yeah, sort of my immediate line, I guess. So for me I'm sort of quite free of that and a bit privileged in that space, I guess. But I do know of other communities, people's traumas. One of the things I try really, really hard to do, particularly at VU in that job where I have power, when I have staff or students who I know hold trauma, I make sure that they have space and I make sure that they understand that I know that they have space. And so when they fall into a hole, which quite happens, often happens, or when they're acting up because their trauma has been triggered by something in the system, I take them outside and I go, come on, we're going to light the fire. So I light the fire and I give them a smoking ceremony. But I also say, you need to do some work. You need to do some work around who it is that you are and how you understand yourself and what you know about your trauma. Here's somebody else I know who has found a really good psychologist. Go and talk to this person. And if you're not ready to do that right now, I'll go with you. Let's have the conversation. You need to find a really good psychologist and you need to work through that stuff. And you have the time. I give you the time and space to do that. And particularly if there's staff and they're really struggling, I go, you're not taking sick leave. Should I say that out loud? I did. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> that's a deep. This is a deep story and I shouldn't have just trivialised that. Anyway, so I say to them, you're not taking sick leave without a certificate. And so you, you're, just, you're staying on your salary while you go off and do your psychology visits because that's really important and you're really important to our whole team and if you're not well then you can't be part of the team Absolutely. and you can't grow and you can't contribute and that's why you're here and that's why I love you because you're amazing and but you need to fix yourself so you can be here and be powerful and then grow stronger. Is it usually a positive reaction when you say you need to do the work? Yeah. Because that'd be kind of be quite confronting for some yeah. people. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So it doesn't work quite as well for students because they're sort of they they're not quite in as deep a relationship. And lots of that work for students for lots of students, it's around them being stolen and not understanding how to how to track families. And so me going to them also as well and going, okay, let's go to birthdays and marriages, and we'll find that Aboriginal liaison officer there, and we'll see where we can get to. Here's some things to link up and those sorts of things, you know. They'll either go, yeah, let's go and do it and then Moondani Balak pays for them to do those sorts of things and track that history or they just go, oh, yeah, I'm not quite ready yet. And so you have to just let them go over there. For them not knowing who they're connected, that's part of their trauma as well. And so if they're not ready, I can't do anything. And some staff aren't ready when I have that conversation and it is really tricky. Mm. It is really tricky. But what quite often happens is because trauma, as it does, it interacts with your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being and you just either fall apart or you go off the rails. And so at some stage we sort of wait basically and when people fall in a hole we help pick them up. And if they're ready to do it beforehand then that's better but if they're not it just means that it's an extra set of years before they're ready to deal with all of that pain and grief that they've been holding. And so we just give them that time and space because that's what you need to do really. And, you know, if I have the power to do that, then that's what I'm going to do. If I can make an observation about the stories you're telling me and the roles you play, you hold a lot of space for people. And, you know, looking at Victoria University, it's a, it's a big bureaucratic institution. It's traditionally a very white space. Mm. You know, the past few chancellors have been white men. Yeah. I, I, and you'd have to hold that space as the sometimes the only Indigenous person probably in the room. Mm. Similarly, you have the responsibility to almost represent the community and take care of the community like you you mentioned before. I mean, how do you how do you hold all those things ah, all at once? Yep. So, oh, well, you don't hold them. You work out tools to let that go. Sometimes it takes a while to realise 
that you can let things go. When I know, when I feel like I'm twisted up and I'm just getting to the end of something and it's just I'm not working properly or my mind's just sort of not getting into spaces, I'm not doing the work that I know I should be doing. Oh, not should because I don't like the word should. I'm just not doing the work that I'm meant to be doing. Then I'll go out and light my own fire and do my own smoking ceremony. Or I'll get in the car and I'll drive up onto the river and I'll walk on country. And, you know, I'll go out to the cemeteries and say hello to all the old ancestors and stuff like that. Or I'll do that sort of deep breathing, that sort of meditative deep breathing. It took me a while to work out that there was such a thing around that deep breathing and meditative practice that you can actually push those things out that you're holding in your gut because that's where you hold that stuff, yeah? And if you don't know that that's what you're doing, then you can't work out how to use the tools to get it out. And so I do those sorts of things. I also even just where I live is close to the Maribyrnong River and so there's a lot of Indigenous plants around that sort of space. So I'll quite often just be walking around and I'll just, while I'm doing a walk down the river, I'll just pick off some of the gum leaves and break them open and just smell them as I'm walking along. And I'll stop and look at this plant and that plant and go, oh yeah, that's that thing, that's that one, that's a really calming space. And I'll see that and I'll hold that rather than holding on to anything else that's making me feel bad. And so I release things that way, yeah. It sort of makes sense. I mean, I don't know whether it sounds weird, but it makes sense. And that's what I do. Yeah. 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 And is that something you've developed over time or you've learned from other people? Yeah, I think I think from you know early days being taken back up to Yorta Yorta country and come on mission and knowing those sorts of things and walking around and seeing those amazing scar trees. Also part of my job at Aboriginal Affairs when I was part of the cultural heritage program and being out on country with those people who were cultural heritage officers and they talked to you about what they'd found in the landscape and where the cultural heritage sites were and what they meant. Being in those conversations and with those people also opened up your mind and so you see things differently. Mm. And then having that other experience with um, Annette Sherbus around the west of Melbourne and understanding those other spaces where Aboriginal people walked before and then just reading the historical record around how Aboriginal people used that space, you know, how they'd moved to the landscape. There was lots of reports out of the old Victorian archaeological survey where they did geographical and Indigenous plants and cultural heritage sites, like lots of reports around that. And I used to read those things and I'd, I'd get to the bit where all the maths were in and I'd sort of flip through those. But the story and the narrative behind that was pretty amazing. And then when we were at St Albans campus, Mundani Balak, we set up, we helped set up a set of environmentalists and scientists at that campus, the Irimu Nursery. And so we used to do cultural burns in that space Um, and we grew all the plants that were indigenous to that region and I got to understand those plants and um, see those plants and talk to school groups about those plants and work with other people who were talking to school groups about those plants. So all that knowledge just builds up in you and I guess and it just, yeah, it gives you strength and it gives you a space to be. So that's how I got there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you want more water? Oh, yes, thanks. We've only got... 95 more questions today. Okay. Um, so we'll get more water a bit later. Are you sure? I think I've been counting. I think we were down about 10, so we should only have 90 left. Um, do you have any questions? I've got, I've got another one. Oh, you go. I, I actually, yep. I, I wanted to shift back to, yep. which was in your, in your time with Victoria University, I mean, you've spent more than two decades there. You've also been Oh, that makes me sound really old. Involved in, I mean, I just yep. think your experience and it's significant yep. experience yep. and um, – your years of service there, as well as the service to the Footstray Community Arts Centre and as well as a variety of different community organisations, committees and advisory groups, what shifts have you seen in the conversation? Because mm. the landscape would have been very different to what it was even 10, 15 years ago. I'm trying, I'm sort of going, has there really been a shift? Like sometimes I get really cynical and I go, no, nothing has much changed at all really. Like we're still pushing back. We're still going, you haven't got it right, particularly inside large mainstream institutions like the university. Like we've taken steps and we've, we're doing some amazing work within. So in that respect, yes, we have made changes. So, you know, we're delivering our own Aboriginal units with Aboriginal lecturing staff, facilities people within the university before they start to build stuff or do campus master plans. They go, oh, we better go talk to Mundani Balak, you know, where's KJ? Because if she tells us off, we're going to feel really bad about that. <laughs> 
and <laughs> those sorts of things. So in early days I know, like I was on university council as a general staff representative and so university council is like, you know, the board of the organisation, yeah? And so I go to university council meetings and back then, this is when I first started, so I'd only been there about five or six years or whatever, and I'd raise my hand to speak and I'd go, Ah, oh, so you're talking about a new music program and you're going to do th- these things at the Sunbury campus. So are we going to put Aboriginal music into that program? And please tell me you're not going to do didgeridoo because didgeridoo is not a traditional musical instrument of this country. And they'd all just look at me and go real quiet and nobody would answer. And I go, was that a stupid question or did they just not get it? And because I was a bit unsure of my voice then, I just used to think oh, that was a stupid question. Right, so it took me a long time mm. to get myself into a space where I, where I would go, no, that's not a stupid question, and they didn't answer it, and so I need to ask that next time around, or I need to ask it again, in that same meeting. But that's a change in me. Has that been a change in the university? Perhaps. Because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from that then to now. So I'm thinking about yeah, then yeah. how it was then and what it is yeah. now. And so now we've got things like an Aboriginal. Equity policy, that's the wrong words, but it's Aboriginal something. that has got equity in the title anyway. And so we've got an, a specific Aboriginal policy and I don't think I could have done that when I first started at the university. They would have just gone, no, 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 we don't have these things that are different. And I used to get that from a lot of non-Indigenous academics in the space when we'd write up stuff on the website and they go, well, why are you having these things for Aboriginal people? You know, we've got a multicultural society and so everybody should be involved altogether and just just be for Aboriginal people and you'd try and have conversations with them and if people were really not understanding that, like there was a couple of people that made complaints against me for going, no, it has to be Aboriginal people. Mm. And they, you know, come back and go, oh, yeah, but you're all married out now because, you know, your blood, blood quantum's not the same. And I go, no, you can't <laughs> say that. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, yeah. and they'd go, and they go, she upset me and I'm I'm affronted by that and so I'm going to make a complaint against her and you go, what the hell, who are mm. you? Would they do that now? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. You can try I tomorrow. Think, at, that's true. Yeah. I could. <laughs> See what happens. Yes. I think, so that's been a shift, I guess. Mm. So people, I mean, there's still people out there who have those racist thoughts and they still think that way. Maybe they've just learned how to be more quieter and they say it in different spaces or they, yeah. So there's, there has been shifts and changes, but has it really shifted a lot? I don't know. Yeah, so there's a whole stack of things at the university that needs to still change, but we are on a good trajectory to sort of be stronger and, and do that sort of work. So we're doing some amazing research at the university on um, Gary Foley's Aboriginal History Archive, doing some amazing research in the western suburbs around black women's healing and, and cultural practice. Got a number of more postgraduate students doing PhDs on all sorts of different topics. So all those things have changed. So, yes, I think we have changed actually now that I've got to that point. I've gone around (laughs) in a circle and sort of maybe, anyway, yeah. So I think there has been some change. And you being the agitator of constantly having to either call out their lack of Aboriginal inclusion into just a curriculum or into their practice. I mean, that's, that's what I was getting at with the question before, but how do you always feel like you have to play that role? That can be tiring. Yeah. Well, but that's, but there's also the other side of that is that, so what we do in Mundani Balak is is we, that's where all the mob hang. So all most of the Aboriginal staff, there's probably three or four who aren't in Mundani Balak. So most of the Aboriginal staff who are doing teaching, learning, and research are in Mundani Balak. So we support each other in that way, right? And so whenever I'm in a space where I'm at management meetings, um, like with the vice chancellor or the provost or council members. I know what I say comes from that whole mob of people. And because if I don't say it the right way, they will find out and I'll be in trouble. And I don't want to be in trouble from them because I don't want them going, KJ, you just got it all wrong, you know. That's not who we are. This is the important part about Aboriginal standpoints and perspectives. And so I have to know that. But I know that by having conversations with my staff and them having conversations with me and them everybody knowing that we are all on the same page and this is what's important for all of us. So one of the first things I said to the new Vice-Chancellor was, and because he knew we had Gary Foley and Jackie Katona there, Jackie Katona who um, stopped the Jabaluka mine, she's amazing too, you know, these community activists. For a lot of the younger staff, they just scare the shit out of them, you know. But their voice is amazing in that space. And so I have conversations with them, I have conversations with all the staff and we have like a hot pot lunch once a month where we just talk 
about stuff. We might talk about crap things, but lots of times we talk about what's happening in the university and what's not right. And the things that aren't right will probably take a long time to change. They're my backbone, yeah? So they hold me up straight as well as me being able to walk on country and being able to let go of things out in spaces. They're my backbone and they're my voice and I know when I speak at those other spaces that I'm speaking for them and with them. And so that's really important too. And so that's, yeah, that's where that's another space where I get my strengths from. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's like another source of legitimacy almost mm. from the from community mm. where in that in that music context or the music example that you gave, you almost felt like you didn't have that authority to ask that a, a legitimate question and mm. you kind of thought you were, was that a dumb question to ask? With yeah. 25 years being, I guess, a part of the university, it's a long, you know, it's a long job yes. <laughs> to have in any organisation. Yep. And I guess we've spoken about the fact that, you know, there, there's been changes but maybe, you know, at times it might feel like it's been a really slow process for change. Is there a reason why you've stuck with working with a university? Mm. Because you feel like maybe unis are an opportunity to make changes because they've got a different level of voice and, you know, education and so forth? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm... Um, there's, there's a whole set of steps that I've been on to get to where we are now. Mm. So when we first started, we were just a student support unit and we were part of an equity and social justice branch. So we weren't even a separate entity within the university and we had no voice at all. There was probably two Aboriginal people in the whole of the university. And then we sort of went, okay, so we need to be separate from this equity and social justice branch. We need to have our own name. So we got changed our name into Mundani Balak. So at the same time, I also developed a Aboriginal education committee, which had a really large voice. And they actually went, so they came up with these ideas and they went, let's do this and let's do that. An academic board who they used to report to went, no, we haven't got money for that. We can't do this. We can't do that. No, but we can do this. Okay, let's try that. And then they went, let's run an off-campus program. And they went, we've never done that at the university before. So the committee actually went, well, this is how you do it. Blah, 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 blah. This will work. And they said, okay, we'll go and talk to this dean and see what he reckons. And, so, and that was the next step that we did. So we delivered a whole higher education course off campus for a university that had never done that before. I mean, they'd, they'd done some work overseas internationally in delivering university courses in those spaces with academics in those, from those areas, but they'd never done an Aboriginal-specific course. And this course had um, a number of entry points and exit points and so people could get RPL, they could come out with certificates, come out with diplomas. So we did that. And then then we went, okay, so that's not quite working up there. Let's bring it back into the city. So we did it in the city. Then the students got less and so we ended up with some units. And then we were going, okay, so there's some really good work going on here. We, we need to get more people because we haven't got enough people to do all this work. So we started hiring some more people. And then we had to work out the finances. So the finances in a university are just – they just blow your mind. <laughs> And there was all this money that was hidden that we had to put our hand up for because we were actually teaching all this stuff and so all of that money for teaching should have been coming to us and not to the colleges and they were making all this money, paying our salaries. We're not, we're not going to the extra money. So we got that. That was the next step. And then we got people like Gary Foley in and one of his first questions was, apart from the fact that – where was he living? He was in Fairfield at the time. Left Melbourne Uni to come to Victoria University. We were at St Albans campus. He'd never been to St Albans before in the whole of his life. It took him forever to get <laughs> – he got lost – he arrived and he was meeting with the dean um, of the college who we were sitting under at the time and he went, I'm gonna, am I allowed to swear? Go for it. He said, what the fuck do you think I'm going to do out of this place? I don't even know where I am. You expect me to come out here every day? And I went, yep, I do. And he went, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he goes, well, what about my archive? What about my, all my historical stuff? Are you going to help me find a space to store it all? And I go, yeah, let's find some space. <laughs> and he went, really? He goes, oh, I was asking Melbourne in for 10 years if, if they were going to do anything in my archive. And he said, I've been here half an hour and you've told me I can find a space. And then I had to go and find a space. Anyway, so then we got all of those archives in and then we got into the research side of what we do. Yeah. yeah. And so those sort of big shifts um, have led the way to where we've – We've changed what we're doing. We're at that space now where we're growing our teaching. We're sort of looking at restructuring ourselves. And so I'm sort of pushing and going, well, should we be a college, like like a faculty mm-hmm. within the university? What are we going to do about our research? How is that all going to link back to our teaching and learning? 
now we've finally got a university st- strategic plan because the new vice chancellor has refreshed that and reviewed it, mm-hmm. where protecting country is actually a theme in yep. that strategic plan. Whereas the last strategic plan, I was going to academic board and I'd written on Facebook, oh, the vice chancellor hasn't put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people anywhere in the strategic plan. And the chair of the academic board actually saw that on Facebook. I don't know how he did that anyway. And so he rings me up and I went, what are you doing calling me? He's going, oh, KJ, I've spoken to the vice chancellor about there's no reference to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the strategic plan. Um, he's going to talk to you when you get to the meeting. I went, oh, my God. Yeah. And then I went, oh, so that means he'll put it in. And he went, oh, yeah, well, look at that. And then he never did. He never did? No. So the new strategic plan now has protecting country. Wow. And I've gone, so that's another step, yeah. So all of those steps just, yeah. yeah. And so the thing around, oh, so where I'm up to now is I'm growing more staff, mm-hmm. getting more young academics in as sessionals. The people have been there for a while. They're moving into sort of like some management jobs within Moondani Bullock. We're expanding our research. We're in the research strategy as well as the university strategy. And I've enrolled in my PhD, so I can't retire till I finish that. <laughs> um, and I'm doing it part-time. So when I finish my PhD, then I can retire and then I'll have this whole structure set up. That is amazing. Yeah. So I'm close. Yeah. That's incredible. That I feel incredible. like <laughs> like what a legacy. <laughs> You just summarised 25 years in, I think, five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, and it's, it's amazing to go from, you know, two staff with, you oh. know, without a brand or, or an identity at the time 25 yeah. years ago and to, you know, your succession plan now. Yes, yes, I have got a succession um, plan. Uh, yeah, and to, I guess, in many ways, to come back to the point of whether it has changed or the university has changed, and you clearly have made a change. You mm. really have. And talking about that kind of sense of creating voice in the community, you've certainly done that for your community. Yes, um, I should give myself amazing. some ticks, shouldn't I? Definitely. More than ticks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, the one thing that... I observed when when you were speaking is you you, you have no loss of enthusiasm mm. no. <laughs> and energy for any of it. I mean, you look back on the, the really hard times mm. of being you know forgotten from a strategic plan or having a very small staff or just not being recognised across the organisation, and but you say it with a smile and and you're laughing at the at the yeah. times that you do it. Is that is that approach to not taking yourself too seriously? Is that how you've stayed so long in in an organisation like that? Probably. I don't know. Sometimes it's sort of like a black fella thing, you know. You, you sort of, if you're, not, if you're not smiling and actually believing that you can make a change and making a joke about how shitty it is, if you can't do that, then you, you just, you don't, you don't do anything, basically. You just sort of fall in, fall in a space where there's too much despair and you just don't believe that anything will ever change. And if you do that, then you're not in a space to even think about what, what might happen or what's possible. You don't push the boundaries. And if you're not going to do that, then how are you going to work with community or help grow community or make a change in a, in a large institution? You either got to get in there and believe it and make jokes about it when it's really bad or sit on the step and have a bit of a cry and then get up and go again or just get out of the job, you know, go somewhere else. Just go and do a little backyard data entry job which is boring as shit um yeah and yeah. i mean you could do that but yeah where would that take you really yeah look we're, we've crossed the hour mark Yay! which has been very very quick <laughs> uh, i was lost in conversation i still have a couple of questions obviously oh, do you? <laughs> but the the one big one that we ask all the interview guests that we have on this podcast to wrap up is what piece of advice would you have for young first nations people just imagine yourself on the Westgate Bridge, coming back into the West, you see a, a signboard. What message would you put on there for them? Oh, well, it'd have to be a big cyborg because my message probably gone forever. No, anyway, I think finding – the important thing is finding your own space and finding your own voice and knowing your own identity and your own strength and then just let it fall into space as it goes. See, I told you my sign would get bigger and bigger as I kept talking. And there's so many amazing young – First Nation people who just blow my mind because they're amazing activists. They have these amazing dialogues where they're talking about so much social change and political action and they're actually out there doing stuff, you know, like the um, the mob who organised all the marches that we had last year and the year before. You just go, wow, 
you know, you people are amazing. And the other younger community who haven't quite got to that space, yeah, for them, yeah, stand in your identity, know your identity and find your voice and then you'll find your power. I guess that was what I would say on my billboard. That's amazing. Amazing. KJ, Karen Jackson, thank you (laughs) so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I know a lot of people will get so much from this conversation. So on behalf of both Julia and I and this podcast, thank you. No worries. Thank you both for listening to me waffle on. Anyway, (laughs) it's been really good. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I was a bit nervous at the start. I was going, oh, my God, what are they going to ask me? (laughs) It was good. This has been great. Yeah. So insightful. That's great. Um, Thank you. Wow. Really appreciate your cool. time. Well, so be, good. I'm going to be thinking about this conversation yeah, for a couple of days. <laughs> KJ, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Ah, good question. I don't know. Like, I could try the VU webpage. It doesn't really have much about me, but it does um, talk a lot about Moondani Bullock and it also talks about how Moondani Bullock engages and has partnerships in the Western Melbourne. And most of that is me, which is a bit of a shame. I'm going to have to change that in my succession planning. But, yeah, so if they go to vu.edu.au and then do a search for Moondani Bullock, they'll find a little bit of information there. There you go. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Victorian Government. The Collective West podcast is a proud recipient of the Department of Fairness, Family and Housing Cold Youth Content Campaign. As part of this series, we'll be interviewing 10 thought leaders from across Melbourne's West, ranging from education, employment, and government. Stay tuned for future episodes. Julia and I are really excited about the range of interviewees that we've got coming up over the next 10 weeks. So stay tuned and stay safe.